Oh Lord, that is our desire this morning that you would speak to us through your word as your spirit dwells within us. And Lord, there might be any number of things that would hinder us from hearing well from you this morning. Distractions or trials or whatever it might be that is on our minds as we gather here this morning. And so I pray that you would cause us to hear your word through the Spirit this morning. Lord, your sheep hear your voice. I pray that you'd clear out all the roadblocks that would be in the way. Lord, that um, you would open our ears. And Father, there are people here who are spiritually deaf, can't hear your word, don't even want to hear your word. And we ask that you would do a miracle. Just like Jesus used to heal the physically deaf and cause them to hear. Lord, would you heal the spiritually deaf and cause them to hear your life-giving word. So Lord, we're needy. We're always needy. We're depending on you to help us. We cannot do this on our own. And so would you draw near now as we seek to draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Like a wise parent or a skillful coach, the Apostle Peter doesn't just tell us to do things. He gives us solid reasons to follow what he calls us to do. For example, we saw that we are called to pursue a life of holiness because that is an appropriate response to the blessings of salvation that we saw in the first 12 verses of the letter. Or last week, we are called to live in reverence based on the privilege of calling God our Father, read from Romans 8 earlier, and knowing that we were redeemed, set free by the payment of a price. What was the price? Nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Our text for today calls us to love one another, and that is connected to what we have experienced through the miracle of the new birth. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls... For a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The structure of these verses is like a sandwich. There's one imperative verb in the middle of two supporting arguments. So the command in the middle is love one another. And that is based on some realities that Peter assumes 
that his readers both then and now have already experienced. So we're going to walk through these verses in the order they happen in the life of a believer. So first, we heard the word. Look at the last phrase of verse 25. And this is the word which was preached to you. I have a little note in the margin that says, preached as good news to you. ESV, this word is the good news that was preached to you. King James has this, the word is the gospel that was preached. So at some point in a church service or a special meeting or some other setting, we heard the good news of the gospel, God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin. And so a couple texts that talk about that sequence. Go to Romans 10, Romans chapter 10. Starting in verse 13, here's this promise, this gracious promise. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, rescued from sin, restored to God. And then Paul keeps talking. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Or 1 Corinthians 1.21. 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God... God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So somebody's telling out the word in some setting. We hear the word, and then for many of us, a miracle happens. We were born again through the word. Look at verse 23 in 1 Peter 1. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living, enduring word of God. You were born again through the word of God. Peter touched on this miracle already in verse 3. Remember, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So to be born again or the new birth or regeneration are all expressing the supernatural act of God that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life and which brings us into God's family. And remember, Jesus said, you must be born again. Otherwise, you will not see or enter the kingdom of God. So it's absolutely necessary, but we don't bring about the new birth. It said, God caused us to be born again. And it's not because of our great merit, as if we could somehow deserve it, but it's according to his great mercy that we could never deserve. So we've been born again, and now verse 23 lets us in a little more on the means or the instrument that God used to bring about that miracle of the new birth. We've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. So the word of God is, first of all, living. 
You might remember Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick and powerful. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's, it's alive. <laughs> and two ideas of that. One is the word is not old and stale, and it used to speak to people just a long time ago. It's alive. It is the voice of the living God still speaking to us today. So it's not just back then God used to talk. It's God speaks through his word right now. The other piece of it is the word of God gives life. God created the universe through his word. So in Psalm 33, it says in verse 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Verse 9, for he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. God said, let there be light, and there's light. He just spoke it. I think Brett prayed in his prayer. It wasn't effort. He didn't have to work hard at it. He simply spoke the universe into existence, or Jesus gave life to a dead man through his word. In John 11, Lazarus is dead and buried. He's been dead for four days. Verse 43, when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth. There's power in Jesus' word to raise a dead man back to life. James 1.18 says that's not just Lazarus' experience. It's anybody who's a believer this morning. James 1.18. James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So brought us forth is the idea of Begotten, he begot us, or he brought us into birth, he brought us into life through his word. So the word of God is living, it's life giving, and it is enduring and abiding. Look at the contrast in verse 24, which is a quote out of Isaiah 40 All flesh, all human beings are like grass. And its glory, the impressive accomplishments or achievements of humans are like the flower of grass. So people and their strength and their wisdom and their influence and their popularity are all very short-lived. In fact, in Psalm 90, it talks about man is like a flower that is flourishing in the morning and by evening it fades away. So not just here today, gone tomorrow, which is brief enough. Here this morning, gone this evening. That's your life and my life. Our life is a vapor. We're grass. We're flowers. (laughs) We just don't stick around very long. But the word of God lasts forever. Go to Psalm 119. And of course, the whole Psalm, 176 verses, is about the word of God But here's verse 89. 
Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever. Or verse 160 of Psalm 119. The sum of your word is truth, just like Jesus said. Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Not just some of them, not most of them. Everything God has to say is everlasting. So here's two ways to apply that reality. First of all, in our culture, it is not unusual to hear a comment like this. Well, the Bible's view of marriage or the Bible's view of women's role in the home and in the church or some other hot current issue, it's outdated. People used to believe that way when they didn't know any better, but we know better now. We're a lot smarter now. So we don't have to listen to what's in that book. It's just old and outdated and old-fashioned, and don't worry about it. And here's Peter following Isaiah's quote, saying, you know, that viewpoint and the people who are saying those kinds of things are as short-lived as grass. But the word of God endures forever. It never needs to be updated or revised to keep up with man's opinions and sensibilities. Peter was there in person when Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. So, if there's ever a choice between what the word of God says and what the world says, go with the word. (laughs) The world's often going to be off. In fact, usually going to be off. The word of God abides forever. Another way to apply that would be that we can have confidence in the unchanging truth and unbreakable promises of God's word. So a promise like Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And it's a fight of faith to believe promises sometimes. We might say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't see how this could be good. I don't see how you're going to meet my needs. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. It doesn't feel like those are going to be fulfilled in my lifetime. So it's a fight of faith. But a day will come when we will say with Joshua, in Joshua 23, 14, You know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. 
The verse starts with, Behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. Joshua's at the end of his life. He's looking back over his lifetime. He was a slave in Egypt. He lived through 40 years in the wilderness. He got to do the conquering of the promised land. He's coming up to the end. These are some of his, almost his last words. And he says, I'm appealing to you, not just in my life, all of you know, not one word that God promised fell to the ground. And he's absolutely sure nobody's going, oh, I've got some exceptions. You don't know about my life. I think some of those promises failed. No. Like David, who also said, I have been young and now I am old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Just his testimony. It's like the benefit of hindsight, the benefit of some perspective. We know God is always faithful to everything he says in his word because the word of God endures forever. It's not going to fail. So we heard the word. The good news of the gospel of Jesus' death for our sins and burial and resurrection on the third day. We were born again through the word. And then God gave us the gift of new life in that regeneration so that we obeyed the word. So back in 1 Peter 1, look at verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth. So obedience to the truth seems to be a synonym for believing the gospel. Let me show you that from five texts. So besides that, in 2.8, 1 Peter 2.8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Chapter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then Paul talks that way too. Romans ten sixteen. Romans ten sixteen. So we already read how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And then Paul says, however, they did not all heed, or King James and ESV both have, obey the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So believe and obey the good news are interchangeable. And then 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. 2 Thessalonians 1, Verse 8. It's talking about the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with mighty angels and flaming fire. Verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So maybe that's a little category switch for you because the gospel is an invitation. Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. That's an invitation, but it's more than an invitation. It's not like, hey, I'd like to invite you over for a birthday party, but no big deal if you can't make it. 
it's not just an invitation, it's a command that you either obey or disobey. That's what those verses we looked at say. It's you either obey, believe in the Lord Jesus, or you disobey the gospel. So Joe Stark, I hope you all know who he is, or most of you know who he is. He's one of our international partners, served in Afghanistan for many years, home for now. But he was at a meal with the governor of the province. And provinces in Afghanistan are at least as big as the states in the United States. So kind of a big, hotshot guy. And they were talking about some different things. And at one point in the conversation, the governor said to Joe, you should come and talk to me about that. And Joe went away just saying, oh, that was nice. That's a polite thing to say, kind of like, you should, we should get together sometime. We, we all do that with each other. And then an Afghan native told him, no. When the governor says we should get together, it's not an invitation, it's a command. That's the way we need to hear the gospel. Yes, it's an invitation, but it's more than an invitation. It's a command. We're called to believe in Jesus, but all of us start with hearts like Pharaoh who said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? We're all rebels to the core by nature. The only voice we want to listen to is our own. We don't want to listen to God or anybody else. So why do we obey the word? Why do we obey the word of truth? And the ultimate answer is because of the miracle of the new birth. Just keeps coming back to that. Go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Verse 26 and 27. Moreover, God is speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, this unresponsive, hard heart from your flesh, and give you a tender, responsive heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. We obey because we've been given the Holy Spirit in the new birth that causes us to want to obey and actually obey. We're new creatures. If any man is Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away like disobey, rebel against God, and I want to obey and serve God. So the new birth through the word, produces obedience to the word. Say that again. The new birth through the word produces or causes obedience to the word. And that produces a purification. The next phrase is, you purified your souls. So before God saves us, we're unclean and defiled before a perfectly holy God. And salvation not only redeems us from the penalty of sin and our former way of life inherited from our forefathers, we talked about that just last Sunday, but it also purifies us from the pollution of sin. So go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Verse 
4 and 5. But after this nasty list of what we were like before the grace of God intervened in our lives, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And then he keeps going, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So there's a washing that takes place when we're born again. There's a cleansing. And we also are called to purify ourselves. So go to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. And we'll start in verse 16. The last half of the verse says, For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, the one I just read, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's almost like the last three Sundays in a row are in that verse. We talked about having God as our Father, talked about being redeemed and having a fear of God. We talked about pursuing holiness, and here's this cleansing and purification. Well, how does that happen? Well, it should be clear, it doesn't happen by our own Strength. And Peter himself gives us the answer in Acts 15. Acts 15. Starting at verse 7. So this is the council of Jerusalem. And do Gentiles have to get circumcised or not? Do they have to follow all the rules of Moses or not? Are they really one of us or not? And verse 7 says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. See it? So we're born again. We're kind of initially cleansed. (laughs) We're called to keep purifying ourselves and cleansing ourselves in the fear of God and pursuing holiness. And we do it by faith. We live by faith. We walk by faith. We do everything by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whatever is not a faith is sin. We have to do everything by faith. And so obedience to the truth leads to cleansing our souls by faith, and that leads to a sincere love of the brethren. It's the next phrase in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Peter had never 
met any of these people he's writing to in 1 Peter. And yet, as we pointed out in verse 8, he knows and assumes they already love Jesus. Just by definition, if you're a believer, you love Jesus. And he also assumes believers already love each other. See how that flows? In obedience to truth, you perfect your souls for a sincere love burning. He's he's not saying you should. He's saying you did. It happened because you were born again. It's connected to the experiencing of a new birth. So let's go to 1 John, just a couple books over. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So you know those verses. You probably know the song that goes with it. And here's John Piper's comments on it. Love is from God the way heat is from fire, or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It is woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light, and fire gives heat because it is heat. So John's point is that the new birth, this aspect of the divine nature, becomes part of who you are. The new birth is the imparting to you of divine life. And an indispensable part of that life is love. God's nature is love. And in the new birth, that nature becomes part of who you are. The new birth is the act of the Holy Spirit connecting our dead, selfish hearts with God's living, loving heart. So that his life becomes our life and his love becomes our love. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So again, here's a connection to the new birth. If God is really your Father through the miracle of regeneration, you will not only love him, but you will love those who are in his family. Again, these are all just assumptions. If the reality of the new birth has happened in your life, these are true of your life. In fact, it is so certain these changes will happen that John uses it as one of the tests of the reality of our claim to know God or to follow Christ or to have experienced new life. Go to 1 John 3, verse 14. 1 John 3, 14. How do you, so 1 John, of course, remember, is... He wrote these things that you might know you have eternal life. How do you have assurance? How do you know you have the real thing and not just a false profession or some kind of false hope? And the answer is, you read 1 John, you look at the tests John gives us and ask the Holy Spirit to confirm or deny the reality of those things in your life. Brett read, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. How does he do it? Through his word. Verses like, Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. It's a test. Do you love the brethren? 
It's not how you become a Christian. Try to love people. Love more and you'll become a Christian. You'll become a child of God or you will be born again as a result. It's you were born again. You have this new nature, this new heart that has an inclination to love God's family members. And so that is so certain to happen in every believer. I can give it as a test to say, you want to know if you're a believer or not? Do you love the brothers and sisters? There's other tests. We've already gone through First John a couple years ago, but that's one of them. Love does not produce life. Love is the evidence of life. Eternal life produces love. Another fruit, a lack of love, is evidence of lack of life. So, in light of what has already happened to us, we heard the word, we were born again through the word, so that we obeyed the word, and that resulted in purification of souls and love for each other. Peter now calls us to fervently love one another from the heart. It's a sandwich. That's the imperative verb, love one another. But it's prefaced before and after with, these are the things that have happened to you if you're a Christian. Love is a genuine concern for and active seeking of another's well-being without worrying what it might cost us. Um, 1 Corinthians is 13 is often read at weddings. I read it at my daughter's wedding in January. Um, by all means, may 1 Corinthians 13 abound in our homes and in our marriages. Amen. Start there. Love, charity begins at home. 1 Corinthians 13 begins at home. But 1 Corinthians 13 was not written by Paul for a wedding he was doing. Did you know that? It wasn't written for a plaque company that wanted... And I have a plaque of 1 Corinthians 13 in our house, okay? Full disclosure. I walk by it every day. Doesn't mean I always do it every day, but it's there. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 because he was writing to a church in Corinth, which is part of Greece, that were not getting along very well. And he wanted to tell them, this is what loving one another looks like. Yes, it's great between husbands and wives. But the original intent of that chapter is brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how love looks. So Jerry Bridges has a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13 I think is helpful because the words are so familiar, you might not hear it anymore. But here's his paraphrase. I am patient with you because I love you and want to forgive you. I am kind to you because I love you and want to help you. I do not envy your possessions and your gifts because I love you and want you to have the best. I do not boast about my attainments because I love you and I want to hear about yours. I am not proud because I love you and want to esteem you before myself. I am not rude because I love you and care about your feelings. I am not self-seeking because I love you and want to meet your needs. I am not easily angered by you because I love you and want to overlook your offenses. I do not keep a record of your wrongs because I love you and love covers a multitude of sins, which is actually going to come up in 1 Peter later. So how's that going to happen? How are we going to love each other? I mean, let's start with our spouses and family members and then one another. How are we going to love like that? 
And again, the answer comes down to John 15, 5 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Last week we sang, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands like love one another could never come from me. I'm not coming up with that kind of love. I'm selfish to the core. So where's that kind of love going to come from? Well, let's look at a couple more verses first. Fervently. Not, so not just love one another as if that wasn't enough of a calling. Fervently. Which means striving with strength or serious effort. Peter's going to come back to that in chapter 4. Verse 8. Above all, keep keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So somewhere between chapter 1 and chapter 4, the fervency of love had already cooled down. And he said, keep it fervent. Keep stoking the fire. Don't just light it once and say, I'm done. It's an ongoing thing. We have to keep, keep fervent. And then from the heart means not just superficial, but really care. And so 1 John 3.18 says, Beloved, let us not love in word and tongue, but deed and truth. Let's not just talk about it. That's what Christians are supposed to say. Let's show it by real actions for one another. So a call to love does not mean not loving already. And you already see that in verse 21. He says, you already are loving the brethren sincerely and fervently love one another from the heart. So it's not like you hate each other. You need to start loving each other. You already love each other. Love each other more. (laughs) And you see that same kind of thing in 1 Thessalonians. So I'd encourage you to turn over to that. 1 Thessalonians. And the beauty of a potluck is I know most of you aren't going to leave to go eat. <laughs> Even if I go overtime because you're eating here. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write to you. Why not? For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. As best as we can tell, 1 Thessalonians was written just maybe a month or two after Paul left. And he left behind a whole bunch of brand new, newborn baby Christians. And he already assumes God has already been teaching them to love one another. He says, you don't really need a letter from me telling you that. You already know that. Because God's teaching you. You yourselves are taught by God to love another. Indeed, you do practice it, love, toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So they already have love because God taught them that. They're already practicing love for all the Brethren, I mean, don't you think there's at least a few quirky brethren in Macedonia? People haven't changed. There's still quirky brothers now, and quirky sisters, and people that are just like, wow, that's a personality it's a little tough to love. And he says, you love all of them, but excel so more. So, how does he think that's going to happen? 
Well, if you're still in 1 Thessalonians 4, go to 1 Thessalonians 3. Look at verse 11 and 12. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And, here's another request, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So where's this love going to come from? From God. How's it going to get there? Ask him. We're pr- this is a prayer. We're asking God to cause this love to happen in your hearts more and more. And then here's a kind of a cool conclusion. Go to 2 Thessalonians which was written not long after 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. So he's not thanking them. He's thanking God. Brethren, it's only fitting. Why? Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. So isn't that something? God taught them to love. They already love. Paul's saying, excel still more. I'm going to pray that it happens. And however many months after, it's like, it's happening. God answered my prayer, so that's why I'm thanking him. Your love for each other, each one of you, grows more and more. So that's how it's going to happen here too. We seek God's enabling grace to do what he calls us to do, like love one another. So it's Philippians 2, 12 and 13, isn't it? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? For it is God at work in you, both to will, give you the desire, and to do the actual ability, his good pleasure. It's his good pleasure for us to love one another. The, the desire to do that and the ability to do that comes from him working in us by his enabling grace. Well, as we close, are you sure you have experienced the new birth that brings you into God's family? We shouldn't just assume that. In fact, Paul wrote to a church, 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. These are church-going people. They've heard it. They already read 1 Corinthians. They're almost done with 2 Corinthians. And he says, don't just assume you know the Lord. Test yourself, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Or do you not know this about yourselves, that Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. So to apply that to tears, if Christ is in you, it, he will produce fruit like obedience and love And if that's missing, you have a false hope. So if God is convicting you, first confess, I am not eligible to be in God's family. I am disqualified because of my sin. I have disobeyed and dishonored God by thought, word, and deed. Psalm 143, verse 2 says, Indeed, Lord, there is no man living who is righteous in your sight. In other words, none of us are perfectly acceptable to God. Turn from your sin, 
and turn from all attempts to earn God's acceptance by anything you can do. We already read Titus 3.5. He saved us not according to works of righteousness we do, but according to his mercy. And so we trust Christ alone to rescue us from sin and restore us to God. We believe his death on the cross is the only way God can forgive our sin. We believe his resurrection from the dead on the third day shows he is mighty to save and has the power to change lives. He doesn't just change our record. We're guilty before God. We've got this certificate of debt, 50 miles long of every time we've disobeyed God and thought we're indeed. He doesn't just cancel that out, Colossians 2.14. He changes us. He changes our hearts so that new things happen. So I'll defer to Peter for the last words this morning. He was preaching on Pentecost to a group of people, very religious people, in fact. But by the end of his sermon, or maybe even in the middle of it, they said, what shall we do? What do I do? And here's Peter's answer. Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the miracle of salvation. You designed it. You're the one who brings it about through the new birth. You're the one who changes us, Lord, dramatically, not as much as we want to be or should be, but you've changed us. We're not who we used to be. Thank you for that. We still have a long way to go, but thank you that you've changed us. And so... I want to start by just praying for anyone who's never experienced the change in the first place of being born again, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that even today you would work in their dead heart and do the miracle you have done for many of us, cause them to live. And for those who do know you, Lord, we want to hear what Peter said, not just hear it with our ears, but obey it, Lord, that knowing you've caused us to be born again through your word is intended to produce love for one another. I pray that it would bear that fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.